So turn in with me, if you would, to John chapter 5. And uh, we have been looking at the, uh, uh, the whole uh, conversation that Jesus is having with the leaders of Israel, uh, the uh, group that John calls the Jews. He's been having this conversation with them concerning uh, what took place in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, which uh, was the events that took place in the temple. So the first 15 verses of chapter 5, you have Jesus as he journeys back into the temple. Uh, he was there for the Passover, and of course he's went up through Samaria, and he's went into Galilee for a time. Now the Feast of the Jews is, is taking place, and he's back down into the temple. And uh, of course there's a lot of interesting things that have taken place there. Uh, there's a man, 38 years, been an invalid, and gets called up in the midst of ministry. And out of nowhere, God intersects his life, and not that how it works? And uh, there's a number of things that take place. And uh, by the time you come down to verse 16, the, the, the event's done being talked about, or at least written about by John. And from verse 16 to the end of that chapter, we have a dialogue uh, going on between the leadership of Israel, which John calls the Jews. They're the ones who are opposing Jesus' ministry. And... Uh, uh, Jesus himself, trying to explain the motivation and the actions that took place in the temple. And uh, what's taking place here uh, is a matter of life and death. Really difficult for me to explain that to someone who does not walk with Jesus. This is not an enhancement to your life. This is not something that's going to get you out of trouble. This is not something that's going to uh, smooth out the rough edges of your life as you know it. This is literally a matter of life and death. Are you listening to me? I'm telling you, man, this is a matter of life and death. And this is how crucial it is. Now, we've been looking at the passage thus far and verses 16, uh, 17, 18, 19, and 20. We've looked at those the last few nights. And verse 21 begins with this, with this really urgency about life and death. And we're not going to get to it this week, but verses 24 through 27, everything in that passage, everything there is centered on the now of the moment. It's the now of the moment. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears, that's present tense, my word, is verse 24, and believes, present tense, him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, and will not be condemned at that moment. Will not be condemned, Okay. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come. I mean, he's just, he's over and over. The time is now. I mean, it's crucial, man. This is life and death matters that he's talking about here. Uh, and it's what he's focusing on. And we want to look at tonight verses 21, 22, and 23. And I'm going to read that for us. And you can begin to get the gist of what he's saying. It says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, or in the like manner, in the same way, the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. And it sounds like there that He's, you know, he's going to give life to whom He wants to or whom He's pleased to give it. But the idea is that He is just, it tickles Him. It's hilarious life-giving. <laughs> you know, it, it's, He's eager to do this, you understand. So even so, the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment... To the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So he's talking about life and death and judgment and honor. 
Okay? It's, it's, it's consistent themes. It's themes he's always talking about. This is a matter of life and death that he's talking about. And it really centers in on judgment, which is what this whole passage is about. I mean, uh, the, the leaders of Israel have come with judgment on their mind. Uh, not only in the man who's been there uh, for 38 years in an invalid position in the temple. And then you have Jesus who's healing. They come with judgment, breaking the Old Testament law. It's really crucial. It's good to see you tonight. Um, I have been radically changed in my perspectives of judgment uh, and the way that God looks at me. There is some extremely flawed perspectives of judgment in the church. Okay? Um, I'm really careful of this. Because uh, it seems like every church has done this or supported it or likes it. And there's probably certain aspects of it that are helpful. But the, this is really aggressive, but the heaven's gates, hell's flames concept um, was never, ever, ever, ever the evangelistic tool that Jesus used to save someone. He never pointed his finger and said, if you don't shape up, you're going to hell. He never said that. And why I'm strong on that is because there is a a product of that makes him unclear to us. Uh, I haven't talked much about me, and I, and I give this illustration in, in a couple other of our studies because it's so clear, crystal clear to me. Uh, I grew up in a non-Christian home, and uh, my, I grew up Mormon, really. My, my dad was Mormon. And uh, my mother went to a little Baptist church, and uh, we had a divided home. And, and so I really wasn't altogether Mormon. I didn't buy into the Mormon deal. Uh, and my mom would steal me away and take us to a little Baptist church. But uh, there was a time that took place when my father finally left Mormonism, and, and before they got separated, uh, before they were divorced, we, we went to a little church, Harris Chapel Church of the Nazarene, which was really neat. And uh, I was kind of the project kid. <coughs> I was kind of the project kid there for a while. And uh, we had things, when I was in the teen group, called afterglows. Okay? I don't know what you all call them. Uh, I've heard them called snurch. Sunday night after church. Is that what it is? That's kind of neat. Yeah, snurch. There's a bunch of them. Okay. And uh, we had afterglows. And that's where a, the pastor would, would talk in, uh, t- uh, gets with the parents, and talk them into letting have the teens, all the teens, come over to their house after Sunday night. And so they all did that. Well, um, we, we go, once in a while, we got to go to a guy's house by the name of Max Oren, who played professional basketball. And uh, I liked him. His feet were big. I mean, he wore like 15 size, you know, size 15 shoes. He had a pair, a pair of Larry Bird's uh, Boston Celtics shoes, the old school kind. You know what I'm talking about? The Converse with the circle on them. And uh, he had a pair of those, and they were autographed, and he knew Larry Bird, and he played with those guys. And, and this guy was a millionaire. He, uh, he built on his own property a zoo. So we loved to go to, Mac, uh, we loved to, go to Mac Dorns. Now, the best thing about Mac Dorns is that he had, now get this, he had Pac-Man in his basement. He had the Pac-Man. You, a lot of the teens may not be familiar with Pac-Man. It's this really scary video game with ghosts. And um, they chase you around. And it's really, uh, really intense. 
And, uh, but he had Pac-Man in his basement, so we loved to go over there. Well, we decided uh, it was going to be at Max Oren's house, and we were going to go to this afterglow, and I'll, I'll never forget this. He lived in a mansion. It was just beautiful. And we walked in, and he had a big screen TV. But see, back in the 80s, in big screen TVs, there were no such things. And this was a wooden big screen TV. Well, we come in, and uh, the news was we were going to watch a movie. Now, this was mid-80s, Church of the Nazarene stuff. This was really pushing the edge of the envelope radical. And we got there, and the name of the movie, never heard of it, was called A Thief in the Night. Anybody, anybody ever seen the retro 70s? Okay, Horrible theology, but really comical. You could watch it and laugh. It's really funny. But um, we watched A Thief in the Night. And uh, that, you know, that scared me to death. Scared me to death. Uh, if you've never seen Thief in the Night, it, really quick uh, synopsis, it begins with this uh, woman, and she's married, and she had, they have a little girl, and uh, they've been going to church, husband and little girl are saved, she's not, and uh, she hasn't made that decision yet, and they're getting ready for work in the morning, and dad is shaving, mom is uh, in the bathroom, I think she's in the shower, and the shower door's closed, and the little girl's out uh, eating uh, breakfast cereal, I think is what it was, and uh, she has this little favorite doll, and she's always playing with it. And uh, she's talking with her husband, and he's shaving and talking. But after a while, he doesn't respond to what she's saying. And she finally gets out of the shower and puts on her robe. And um, she walks out. At least she walks out of the bathroom in a robe. And, and he's, not, he's not there. But his, his shaver is still on, and it's in the sink. You remember that? And, of course, everybody's glued on the television. And uh, uh, us, youth, us teens were. And they put me front and center. I should have suspected. They put me front and center right in front of the TV, the best seat. And um, she comes out, and she's at calling for him, and, and, and uh, her daughter is not at the table, and uh, her little doll is laying on the, on the floor. And that's strange. She never lets go of the doll. So she picks up the doll. She walks outside. She's looking around. She doesn't see him. She's hollering, looks in the garage, comes back in, and there's this alert on the TV that's on the television. And it's saying millions of people, and it probably won't be millions, but millions of people just disappear from all over the earth. And, of course, we know what took place. Okay, they're after second coming. Well, the movie moves from there, and she jumps, and she's scared to death, and she realizes what's taking place, and, and she's skeptical, and what? And, I, you know, I, I didn't believe all of this this much. And she jumps in her car. She's racing through towns, and you see, through town, you see cars that are running left in, in their lane, and you see, like, a lawnmower that's on, and it's in the middle of the yard. You hear all this? It's a burn in my, in my memory, you understand. And uh, she goes to the movie, and, and she's been left behind. Well, this Antichrist figure surfaces, and lo and behold, uh, lures her friends. <laughs> and so her friends are trying to trap her, and she, she goes to church. And guess who's there? The pastor. <laughs> the evangelist was taken with Jesus, but the pastor was still there. Okay. <laughs> no, she goes to the church, and you've got all these people that are showing up to the church. And... Uh, and again, and, and, and society, as the, as the Antichrist grips down, uh, she, she gets caught. At the end of the movie, she's faced with this, this decision. You can go through this door and, and, and uh, uh, take uh, this really fashionable, in-style 666 tattoo on your forehead. Uh, or you can go through this door over here, and you can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or at least, you know, not take the mark of the beast, and you'll be killed. Well, of course, she, she doesn't want to take the mark of the beast, so she goes through this other door. And there's this, it's in front of this big crowd, and there's this guillotine, and it's dropping. And uh, it's really gruesome. And, and they lay, lay her down there, and they're going to cut off her head, but they don't show it. And, uh, you know, she's, she dies. 
movie ends. I'm, I'm, you know, 13, scared to death, and uh, sitting there, my eyes, my eyes are just huge. And my youth pastor, I'll never forget it, is walking back and forth in front of the TV set. He's walking back and forth. Well, he finally stops, and he wasn't my youth pastor, he was a youth leader, and still good friends today. But he spun around, and he said, hey, he's looking right at me. He says, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or do you want to get your head cut off and left with the mark of the beast? Oh, that's it. And of course, what am I going to say? You know? So I said, sure. And um, I've compiled with that was the wrong picture. That was not the fault of my, my youth leader. God burns for Jesus. But that movie and those types of things may be trying to depict what will take place but give a wrong impression of him. And I had a, an extremely inappropriate view of judgment. And my idea was that God had given me this opportunity to be saved. And, I mean, I had to make my decision. I had to, I, 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 had to, I had to nail this thing down. I had to get it figured out. And I had to trust him and believe him and just put up with these rules that he's going to instill in my life and give up my rights as a, and let him lead me around by the nose. Uh, or, at the end of my life, he was going to flick me into the abyss. That was my concept. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I'll tell you that the majority of the people out there, that's what they believe. Whether you know that or not, I'm telling you, that's what they believe. Okay? The idea of a God that's wanting to save them, that, that's after them, that's running after them, that his idea, does not even cross their mind. In fact, on any, we talked about it tonight. If you're going to talk to an unsaved person, the first thing you're going to do is, well, if, would, if there's a God, would he do this? And would he allow me to do this? And, and, well, he's, and he's brutal. And they have an absolutely contrary picture of God and the concept of judgment. Judgment is strong. Listen to me. Judgment is strong in the scriptures. But judgment is not the way, is not the way that I understood it as a 13-year-old boy watching Thief in the Night. That's not the idea of judgment in the scriptures. Okay? I'm going to talk to you about that tonight. And I really want to begin in verse uh, 21. And he begins talking about this idea of judgment. It's a life and death situation, you understand. And he begins to talk about life. Now, life for John, you've got to kind of put this into perspective. Uh, Sometimes we hear as Christians... Uh, you come to Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, and everything starts to work right. Your finances automatically get fixed. Your body starts feeling better than it ever did. You're, you, know, you, you get better looking. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you never get flat tires, and, and it's going to be great. And not only that, but um, the fringe benefits and, and, and the retirement plan, mansion in the sky. See, that's not, that's not the idea of life for John. See, in fact, <laughs> what we're finding is the life that Jesus talks about, if, see, if, if you don't want trouble, if you don't want dismay, if you don't want your life in a wreck, if you want to keep control of things, stay away from Jesus. Just stay away from him. I'm telling you. If you want everything just easy, pinpointed out, and taken care of, and fixed here and there, run as fast as you can from this place. Because the concept of life always begins in Jesus' language with, hey, take up your cross and follow me. And in Jesus' day, that's crucifixion language. In our day, that is electric chair language. Hop on the chair, man. (laughs) You want to become a Christian? Get the juice pumping. That's Christianity. 
That's what he's talking about here. So the idea of life that we would understand is not the way John would talk about it. In fact, the idea of life that, he, uh, that, that John really embraces, and I'll read this to you just briefly, and he's, he says it all over the place, but it seems to be really clear here. It says, uh, he's praying to the Father about the disciples. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life. This is the concept of life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says that it give eternal life to all those you have given him. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life. Now get this. The life that Jesus is offering, the eternal quality of life. Well, we're talking about when Jesus says stuff like, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. I'm talking about living the way that God has always intended for you to live. What I'm talking about is knowing him. It's gynosko him. It's intimate with him, which again is verses 16 through 20. It's the poyeo concept of doing. If those of you who weren't here, the idea of doing is it's what's going, what God does, Jesus does. What God does, we do. And it's not action, just, just things that we do. It's not just things that are done. It has to do with the motivation that makes God do what he does is the motivation that makes me do what I do. It's a, I can't help myself Christianity. See, when you're tight with him, you're going to do the things that he does. And the relationship that you have, the love that is defined, is not a love for a boss. It's not a love for a really good friend. It's not, see, it's a love that can only be explained. The language that John uses is between a father and a son. It's a highly emotional love. And it's a, it's a literally a father who's wrapping his arms around you and you're seeing through his eyes and, and he's invited you. He's invited you in the most intimate setting that there possibly can be to reveal you the inner drives of his heart. So Christianity is not just adopting a principle, uh, a set of principles or a list of rules. It's literally journeying into the heart of God himself. And you see it from the inside out. And you begin to see why he does what he does. And his passions become your passions. See, this is life for John. This is what he's talking about. This is the concept of life. Now, you understand this is also what's driving uh, Jesus back in, in chapter 5. Uh, verses 1 through 15, the actual events that took place. And moving in the life of this young, uh, in this man who's been there for 38 years, or at least who's been a cripple for 38 years, uh, an invalid for 38 years, that Jesus moves into this man's life. And, and, and for, the, for, for the sheer uh, possibility that he might be able to experience, experience the knowledge of who he is, of who God is, who the Father is, and imparting to this man. Uh, by the speaking of his word, life into his, his members. Now, you understand, uh, life is contrasted in our passage, which is uh, verse 21, with the idea of death. Now, death is talked about, not only in John, but in other passages of Scripture, in terms of a physical death. But there is a, just as there is a physical life and a spiritual life, there is a physical death and a spiritual death. In fact, from John's perspective, are you with me? From John's perspective, you're either living in a spiritual life or you're living in a spiritual death. And it's right now. It's right now. It's going on right now. You're either living and operating out of life or you're living and operating out of death. Now, and it's pretty easy to understand, actually. If you're living and operating in eternal life, if you're living and operating in life, that means you're living and operating in intimacy with him. 
That what's going on in him is going on in you. His spirit lives inside of you. You're seeing through his perspective. You're living in him. That, that's, that's the life. So obviously, if you're living in death, what would that mean? Well, you're living outside of him. You're functioning apart from him. And this is what he says. And it, it's a transition that takes place. For Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, just as God does this, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now again, there's a physical life that Jesus does give. Um, Comes up to this tomb, raises his arms, yells out, Lazarus, get out of here. That's Jeremiah translation, but Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Lazarus, get out of here. And this, they, they've rolled the stone aside and you had this guy probably wrapped from head to toe because Jesus says, let him loose. And he's probably hobbling out there, <laughs> mumbling through the gauze or whatever they wrapped him in. He's soaking wet with the perfume and the, uh, the oils and, and he's been raised physically from the dead. But that, now that's one type of, of death that is, that is raised. It's a physical death. But the other type of death that's talked about in this gospel, and if you want to turn there with me, you can, just a couple pages. It's in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, really beginning at verse 48, he's continuing uh, arguing with the Jews. And in this passage, he's continuing arguing with the Jews. And it's, uh, it's actual, uh, actually a little bit comical. Um, Jesus is on top of everything they say. I mean, they can't trap him. Listen to me on this, okay? They can't trap him. They can't get one up on him. They can't prove him wrong. I mean, not, not, he's spotless in terms of sin. And so by the, this point in the chapter, they, they've resorted to name-calling. Okay? They've resorted to name-calling. Listen to what they say. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? <laughs> okay. So, um, but they resort to, to, to name-calling. Samaritan was a derogatory comment to a Jew. So that's the worst they can do is call him names because they can't prove him guilty of sin or wrong. And this is what Jesus says. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who keeps my word, reoccurring theme going on in our passage, anyone who keeps my word will never see death. Now, Lazarus kept his word. He died twice. Uh, Peter kept his word, died. Apostles kept his word, died. Paul kept his word, died. So is he talking about a physical death there? No, he's talking about a spiritual death. Anyone who embraces, who, who, who hears what he says, who embraces his word, you understand, will never ever see death. So death from, his, from this type of perspective, are you listening to me? Death from what we're talking about here, this kind of death is not a physical death, but it is a spiritual reality in our lives. And the spiritual reality of death in our life, you've got to get this. The spiritual reality of death in our life takes place at the point where we reject verses 16 through 19 in our passage. When we reject intimacy with him, when we reject what's going on in his heart to go on inside of my heart. Now, I don't know how practical you put that in your life, but you understand if God has called me to view someone in my life that I don't particularly like, And he has opened up the avenue. He has revealed me to see in them the way he sees them. 
and I reject that, I have just moved over into the death category. And death will be produced out of that, you understand. Okay? Now, let me give you an example of death. Um, you have a man by the name of Judas. And there's a lot of story on this. And Dr. Manley, a friend of mine, he has been studying the life of Judas uh, because it's intimately involved in the passage he's been studying. And it's really in-depth. And I don't want to misuse this. But uh, I, I'm having trouble with Judas and his motivations. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder and think and study on this that, that Judas wanted the best for Jesus. He wanted the kingdom, you understand. He believed in, he believed in what? He believed in the coming Messiah. He, he wanted to see, he wanted to see the, you know, Israel freed and God's kingdom and movement. He, he, he sold on all that. He was dishonest and he was a liar and he was a thief and he had, he had those kind of things going on in his life. But you see, Peter had that kind of thing going on in his life as well. Maybe not to the extent as, as you understand uh, Judas did. But in the whole idea, what took place is Judas came to a point in his life where he rejected what Jesus offered, took it under his own control to manipulate and pull the strings. Hey, if Jesus was not going to go down there and talk to the leadership of Israel, if he was not going to instigate and move in and just talk to them and those kind of things, Judas was going to arrange the meeting himself, take the thing under his own control, manipulate it, pull the right strings, and get this thing to take place. And what was the result of that? He was nailed to a cross. And the natural result of Judas under his own strength is death. I cannot tell you how many times this has been true in my marriage. Um, and this sounds bad, and I'm not bad. And I had a great heart. But my, I'm a, it's a miracle my wife didn't leave me. When we first got married, um, see, I, <laughs> it was my job as a husband to fix her, you know, to get her spiritually right. I mean, I'm the head of my household, right? And she's got a lot of problems. I've been seeing these things since we've been married. And so we got to get her shaped up. we got to get her fixed. And so uh, I was helping her with that, as any good godly husband would do. And uh, I, I would come in, and she'd be watching a TV show, and hey... God revealed it. He, he brought me home at this time and, and he, he manipulated the events. And hey, man, wow, what an opportunity. And I'd walk up to my wife and say, should you be watching that? And I'd, I'd show her a scripture. See, this is the word of God and, and this is what we consider here. And, and you know, and, and I hear her on the phone and, you know, I've been reading the scriptures and finding that that really sounded like gossip, what you were doing there. Like, but, you know, I just want to help you. I just want to help you. And, of course, she hated my guts for that kind of stuff, okay? And the natural product of bringing my wife's spiritual well-being and spiritual lifestyle underneath my control that I can manipulate, that I control, will produce death. And if you control your wife, she'll leave you, okay? You'll make her life miserable because that's not your responsibility. You're not called to fix your wife. You're not called to fix your wife. Titus chapter 2, you have to read that. You're not called to fix your wife. And the product of that kind of thing will produce death in your life. And over and over and over, see, every time Jeremiah Bullock has fallen flat on his face, it's because he's relied on Jeremiah Bullock. Every time I've fallen flat on my face, it's not because God didn't come through, it's because I did not let him come through. It's because I stepped out in my own strength. I, I, I recoiled from the lifestyle of God and, and the life that he had given me to live. And I lived in death. I lived in the production of my own strength and my own abilities. Those kind of things. Okay? And this is what he's talking about here. That he's saving us from those kind of things. And what's really ironic in this, and, and probably ironic is not the right word, but life takes place in the midst of death. 
Okay? I mean, you come to Christianity to live, and the first thing you're talked about is, is giving your life up and dying. Okay? Which is really odd, you understand. But death is the qualification by which life takes place. You cannot live unless you give up your life. And see, when we come into intimacy with Jesus Christ, and we, we, we come into intimacy with God, and we begin to grow in God, the first thing that's talked about, you understand, the first thing that's talked about is the life that's going on in Him has to go on inside of us. And the life that He's called us to live, now hear me on this, and especially if you've been listening uh, the last few nights, um, the life that's going on inside of us as Christians is not the product of our flesh, it's the product of Him. Okay? That's why the the Christian lifestyle characteristics, the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to me. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Jeremiah. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of Jeremiah. So you can't look at me and say, wow, man, whoa, he's got self-control. No, I have zip self-control. That's why I have Jesus living in my life. And all self-control you see is a product of him and not a product of me. And the moment that I reject him and the moment I rely on myself and whatever, however I would self-control and and however I would work and manipulate and try and strain, death is produced in my life. Okay? This is the concept of death, which immediately, understand, God is leading us out of that, leading us out of death, leading us out of our own strength, out of our own abilities, into life, which is found where a God who's bigger than I am moves in my life and produces through me what I could never produce. Now, this begins to become, I can see your faces. See, this begins to come a little more clear as you move on to the next verse, which he immediately talks about judgment, and it makes total sense. See, when you live a life based out of your own resource, out of your own understanding, out of your own abilities, death is going to be produced. Christianity is living a life not out of your own resource, not out of your own abilities. I'm telling you, for some of you, this is going to be phenomenal news. You have Moses. Walks to the top of this mountain. It's burning. Forty days go by. They say, hey, he's Aaron, he's dead. He's gone. He got fried. Let's get on with the show. Hey, build some type of idol for us, and we'll get down the road and get out of the desert, and it'll be great. Okay? Uh, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, breaks them, has to go up and get another set. But he comes back down, and he hands them the law. Now, this is a, this is a great thing. It's the righteousness of God revealed. How to be righteous. First four, how to be righteous to God. Last six, how to be righteous to man. Problem is, they don't have a chance in this world of pulling that off. They cannot be righteous. And in fact, if they were to enter into covenant with God based on living according to the law, they'd be be dead. They would die. That's why God installed, instilled this sacrificial system. So that when they come into his presence, when when they dwell with him, you understand, their sins fall on this poor little lamb that gets slaughtered. You understand? So that they can maintain some type of intimacy with God. And the lamb pays the penalty of their sin. Now, that's the old covenant. And see, Paul talks about this all the time. See, every time you live out of your own abilities, you're going to fall short and death is going to be produced. Every time your marriage is shaky and you try to fix it instead of allowing Jesus to move in and have his way, death is going to be produced. See, every time your bodily drives are going out of whack, and you don't let Jesus come in and take control of those bodily drives, death is going to be produced every single time. Bring your finances under your own control and watch what takes place. 
death will be produced. Now, the new covenant, and again, this is what we've been talking about. This is the life. This is the raising from death to life, is that life is given where God moves in your life and the fruit of who you are not. All the power which you do not have, all the ability which you don't come close to, is displayed in your life, and the Spirit controls what you could never control. This is the concept of life. You understand? This is the concept of what he's talking about here. That God moves in my life and the fruit of the Spirit, all nine of them, is displayed in my life. You're not getting it. You got it? I'm getting the same look from you. See, Old Covenant, the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. There's a whole different standard of righteousness. Uh, the righteousness in the Old Covenant was serving outside God, obedient, obedience to the law, and, uh, hey, offering my sacri- sacrifices and, and doing those kind of things. But the standard of righteousness in the New Covenant is based on grace, it's based on Jesus Christ, it's based on intimacy, it's based on motive, it's living out of His resource instead of my own resource. That's, and, and judgment takes place. Now listen to what he says in verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, The Father judge, Old Testament. The Father judges no one. That's Old Testament understanding the law. Judgment was there. Judgment happened in that that framework. But now the Father judges no one, but all judgment is in place to the Son. You understand? So we are judged, not according to the law, but we are judged according to the new standard relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. All judgment is passed from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from the Father to the Son, And we are found in him, we are no longer judged. But there is a judgment, because judgment is on the Son, which means the moment that you reject Jesus Christ, listen to me, the moment you reject Jesus Christ, you step into judgment. What if I told you that the only way you're going to go to hell is if you want to go there? What if I told you that God will never send no one to hell? Never, ever send anyone to hell. And the only reason they go to hell is because they chose that over him. That God will chase us to the very edge of our life and saying, don't go. You don't have to go. I went and prepared a place for you. Hell was never for you. It was for the devil and his angels. You don't have to go. Hey, embrace Jesus. Embrace the Son. Live the life that I provided for you. Walk in intimacy with me. And hell is the result of shaking our fist in his face and said, I said, leave me alone. And there's going to be remorse by him when you go to hell. Because he never meant for you to go there. So the concept of judgment, that if I don't live the way that God is... See, see, if I just don't do it perfect, he's going to send me to hell, does not fit in this, does not fit in this picture. And he's been talking about this. Just flip back with me two pages to chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus. It's the same conversation. Listen to the language. Um, we're going to pick it up around verse uh, 16. And of course, we know that, that God so loved the world, He gave Jesus so we can have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Him in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because that's the product of His life, condemnation. So we're already headed on a one-way trip ticket, man. We're sinful. We're condemned. And what's going on in terms of Jesus is the salvation arm of God is reaching towards us. Now, by the time you get to verse 19, he says, this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. It's the truth. But men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done by God. That's the message. That those who embrace the truth come into the light and it's literally demonstrated in their life that what's going on is not the product of their own strength, their own ability, but it's the product of God. This is the idea of judgment. Which, understand, I don't know how this paints a picture for you, but he is pulling for me. He wants me to succeed. He's saying, you can make it. Oh, you're going to be fine. When I fall flat on my face, he says, get up. And he's pushing for me. He's pulling for me. And the only reason, see, standing before God, I will have no reason whatsoever if if, if, if I don't know him. The only reason is because I have fought him the entire way. I have ran the opposite way. The entire way. He has waved red. He's put barricades. He, he's, but he's let tragedy come in my life. You understand? See, the judgment of God, I heard this. See, I heard a Christian talking about this, and I, I held my tongue. But they said, yeah, the, the, the 9-11. Yeah, the, the, the planes. That's, that's the, God's judgment on the U.S. Well, that is ridiculous. I'm not serving a God who kills 5,000 people, who murders baby, innocent babies. I'm not serving a God like that. That's not God's judgment. That is a couple fools who get in a plane, take it over, and fly it in the building. And that's a product of sin. And judgment was heaped as a response of them and of their actions. That was not God's plan. That's not what God did. That's not God's plan. You understand? That was not his witch. That was not a slap on the hand, you understand? That's not the idea of judgment that I get from here in these passages. God followed those boys before they flew into that building the whole way and said, you don't have to do this. And the product of their sin brought what? Death. They hate the United States. Take it under their own control. We'll fix them. What's the product of that? Death. Every single time. And we don't have to live there. And death, the smell of death. Paul talks about this, that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. To the one where the smell of life and the other where the smell of... Talks about that over and over and over and over. Now he ends this whole passage by saying, verse 23, that all may value the Son. Now, again, we've been talking about the idea of value. We talked about it Sunday morning. But see, the value on the Son is He is the only chance I've got to make it. Um, get left out on a ship, fall off the edge, I'm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. All by myself. No one on the right, no one on the left, front, back, gone. Not good. And I look over and I see a boat, a rowboat. Do you know how much value I place in that rowboat? (laughs) Do you know how much value? That is almost, that is almost coming to a minute hundredth of a of a value that we place on him see the only chance that we've got for our marriages the only chance we got in raising our children the only chance we got in making it in our jobs and our emotional and all of those details he's the he's that's that's the value you understand that's how much we value him that he see he's going to come in my life he moved in my life in a point of time and again see I, i yeah i was a drug addict Yes, I did drugs. Um, I was kicked out of the Marine Corps in 1995 for drug use. And, uh, but see, I wasn't bad. 
See, most of us look at druggies as bad. I was not bad. I had a hole in me about this big around. I did not have a relationship with my, my family. I did not have the kind of family life that I wanted. And I left that scene, man. And I moved to California. And a lot of that was my own problems. And drugs were my way of fixing my problems. See, alcohol was my way of fixing my problems. What did that produce? Death, man. By the time I was kicked out of the Marine Corps, I was 6'4 and weighed 135 pounds. Okay? I played basketball at 145. I can't believe I lived. I'm I'm 210 now. That produced death. And God reached in my life. You understand? I reached in my life and said, oh, oh, I've been tracking you down. And he let my circumstances. See, see, God did not make me, as a punishment for doing drugs, God did not make me 135 pounds and almost die. I did that. Does that make sense? I did that. Okay? See, if I lose all my money down at the casino, don't blame God for that. You see, you're the dork that went down there and blew your money at the casino. And God reached in my life and redeemed me, you understand, and brought me, and the issues in my life were no longer solved by my own hand, drugs, alcohol, eating, food, you understand, Uh, being beautiful, work, whatever, hey, money, whatever it was that was in my life that I was trying to fulfill that with, he brought me into the realm of life and I began to live out of his resource. I began to walk intimately with him and he began to meet needs that I even never, I didn't even know that I had those needs. He began certain needs in my life. He met those needs and he breathed life in my, in my bones. And I began to realize that all the judgment that was taking place in my life was not a God who was smashing me, but it was a God who was trying to save me saying, hey, you're killing yourself, man. You're killing yourself. Now you bring, that, that's, that's the passage. It's a whole different view of judgment, you understand. That every bit of pain, you understand, is caused by sin. See, every time my foot winds up in my mouth, it's because of me, not because of him. Now I don't know how you're going to apply this to your life. But I want to ask you, where is your hand at work in your life, or his hand should be at work in your life? I can't change my wife. Uh, He is making my wife and molding my wife into the woman he wants her to be. And I can never produce that. I could pull the guy over in the car who has a horrible attitude, who is angry, who's trying to run people off the road, who tells me I'm number one. Uh, And I could pull him over I could drag him out of the car and I could pound him. Probably could do that. I I physically could probably do that. But that's not going to change him. Jesus, see, the product of that is death, man. Would you you move out of death? Would you move out of death? Would Christianity, would would the walk that we've been talking about, and if this ends on Wednesday, we've waited, and again, he he hasn't wasted his time. But if this ends on Wednesday, where have we been? See, would you be willing to move out of death? Just take your life and go, I've had it, I've done enough. See, there's, and I've talked about this before, but there's a lot of pathetic statements that I heard since I became a Christian. I've heard statements like this, God is never late, but he's never early. Well, that's dumb. Because the reason he's never early is because of me. See, I'm telling you. 
And if I would have got out of the way a long time ago, he would have been way early. But see, what happens is, is I've got this massive crisis in my life. And I immediately turn and go, help! And then I go and I do my best. I manipulate, I, I, I swindle, I weasel, I try to fix. And when it comes down to the last second, when everything's going to fall, I finally turn and say, I can't take care of it. And God says, finally, you arrived at the point where I can work and takes care of it. And then I go, he's never late, but he's never early. And God's going, you dork. I would have been, <laughs> we'd have had that taken care of months ago if you'd have got out of the way. Isn't that how it works? Would you let him in your kids' lives? Would you let him into your marriage? I mean, really let him into your marriage. What if it came to the point if you just said, Jesus, I don't care what my wife does. I don't care what decision she makes. I'm going to serve her and give her to you. Jesus never pulled Judas aside and slapped him around. Never. Never. He never controlled his bride. Because he could not control them. And of course, Judas chose to remain in death. And even if Jesus would have stood up and physically, he still would have remained in death. Because that is a product of God that had worked in his life. And see, not physical. And I had come to a point in my life where he loves her. He, he loves my wife more than I could ever love her. And I release her to him. See, I release my finances. See, if I go bankrupt and I can't travel in evangelism anymore, I, I learned in the very beginning of my ministry that either I was going to charge churches to come and I was going to control the finances or he was going to control the finances. And I, I see, I, I would never trust the church of the Nazarene in my finances. I trust God. And he's, see... And I, hey, I don't have to do this. I can actually have a life. I can have a home. I can have Friday nights off. I can have friends. I don't have to do this forever. I'm going where he leads. And when he provides and he takes care, hey, wherever you're going, we're kicking it together. Would you give him that kind of control in your life tonight? Where, where in your life are you, see, where in your life are you just, ugh, like this? And a lot of times we don't even realize it. It's, we disguise it as, but I love him so much. <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm just, oh. just let him go. Finances is my weakness. Finances is my weakness. Jesus, I love you this evening. It's like digging a hole, trying to get out of the hole. It's like swimming down in the ocean, trying to get out. I need a hand in my life that's bigger than me to pluck me out of the mess. There is no possible way that I can love my wife the way you've called me to. I ain't got a chance in this world of loving other people the way you want me to love them. There is not a possibility that I can live the life you've called me to live on my own, out of my own strength, out of my own abilities. Father, would we, would we be willing in this place tonight to pray, Jesus, bring this church to that point or level it. Bring the ministry of Prescott Valley Church of the Nazarene to that point or shut down the ministry. Would we be willing to pray, do whatever it takes in my life 
to bring me to that point. I guess that would mean that what if you took away something that I was greatly dependent upon? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Some, I don't want you to get desensitized to responding, although some of us have not responded this week. Where is he talking to you about being in control of your life? I've, I've talked with some of you teenagers about some of the pressures you're having and you have bodily drives and peer pressure and those kind of things. Just give him that. Just give him control. Give him control to that, that son or daughter who just, you can't change him. The boss, the work environment. See, you can't, man. There's nothing you can do. Could we allow him into that area of our life tonight? You cannot turn rotten days into better days. Would you be willing to say, hey, where you lead, I'll follow. Breathe life in the midst of this, this mess that I've created. Because every time I rely on myself, my, 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 death spews from me. I want to be crucified with Christ, that I no longer live, but that every time anyone comes in contact with Jeremiah, they come in contact with the Almighty God who's living and moving and acting within. Father, I love you this evening. You got to get that across, Jesus, to me. Yeah, you want to, I want you to get it across to everyone in this place, but I need you to get that across to me. I need you to communicate that to me in my life. And I'm scared to death and I'm nervous. Pastor and I talked today about self-preservation. Man, I've got it. To release control, to not manipulate, to not worry. Oh, if I could just be like a little child, just so dependent, so trusting. The idea of faith, Father, is, is trusting you. Do I really trust you just to release you, my wife? Do I trust you to release you, my finances? I mean, do, when it really comes down to it, and I talk about faith and belief and, and having eternal life, do I really trust you? Would you respond with me this evening? Would you let him in areas of your life that you've never let him in before? We love you, Jesus.